one of the things I'm really keen that this book could do would be to open up legal history to intellectual history, because even the primary sources are so densely packed into very specific contexts and traditions and terms and ideas that can be really difficult and inaccessible. But I actually think if we try to build bridges more between intellectual history and legal history, it can be mutually beneficial. listener and welcome to New Work in Intellectual History, a podcast that interviews intellectual historians about their recently published work. We're produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St. Andrews. I'm your host for this episode. My name is Les Annas. Please follow the Institute on Twitter at St. Andrews IIH. You can find lots of online resources, interviews, and much more at intellectualhistory.net, where you can also find links to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you wish to support our podcast, we also have a support page where you can contribute whatever money you can spare. Everything will go towards keeping the activities of the Institute running. Today, I am joined by Dr. Stephen Bogle. Stephen Bogle is Senior Lecturer in Private Law at Glasgow University, and his recent book, which will be the subject of, of our discussion today, is Contract Before the Enlightenment, The Ideas of James Dalrymple, Vice Count Stair, 1619 to 1695. And the book was published by Oxford University Press in March of 2023. So with all that said, welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I've always wanted to be on a podcast and to be on your podcast is a great honour. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, We're we're happy to uh, have you. Uh, And I suppose the first question I want to ask you and the first question we need to get out of the way is, who was James Dalrymple, or Viscount Stair, as he was known, and why did you decide to write a book about him? So Stair is a 17th century Scots judge. He was also, importantly for us, also a jurist. He was born in 1619 in Ayrshire. He then came up to Glasgow, and he was an outstanding student here. And after graduating, he was involved in the Bishop's War. And then he came back to Glasgow. He was a regent here at Glasgow for six years. And so at that point, he would have taught the full curriculum from beginning to end to um, rather young young men, really very young. Um, And then after that, um, he left academia so he, he he went to a lucrative career at the Scots Bar. He went to become a judge, uh, an advocate there. And during, I mean, we'll get into this and in the context in which he lived was extremely eventful right through um, some of the most significant events in British history. But what happened thereafter was that he became a, a, a judge within the, Cromwell Commonwealth in Scotland, um, in the Court of Administration, Administration of Justice, the Commission for Administration of Justice. After that, um, he became (laughs) a judge under Charles II, 
And then he went into a period of exile in the 1680s because he, he got on the wrong side of the Duke of York and Claver House. And he was, he was associated with a moderate side of the Covenanters. And in the 1680s, that became quite tricky. So he was in Leiden. I think he had a good time in Leiden, a very vibrant intellectual place at that time. But he was getting older then. But remarkably, what we're told is that he came back to the UK on William of Orange's flagship and landed in the south of England. And after that, he managed to find himself again a judge in Scotland. So his life was extremely eventful, at least his public life. He also produced four, four books during his lifetime. In fact, well, we could probably say five books. His legal treatise, The Institutes of the Law of Scotland, first published in 1681. So he, during his exile, he was able to actually bring that to print, even though it's circulated since the 1680s in manuscript form. But then he did a book on uh, theology as well. He did a book on natural philosophy. He promised his printers a book on moral philosophy, but the academics know we always promise books that never come to fruition. So he promised that, but he also then wrote up Decisions of the Court of Session, the most senior court in Scotland. So we have a, a man very much at the front of the, the politics and public life of Scotland and to an extent the British Isles at that point, but also someone who is academically engaged throughout their career. And for me, that means that he's exceptionally interesting. And at the time, his contemporaries um, were a little bit suspicious of him towards the end of his life because he'd managed to survive through many different political regimes oh. and still be a judge during those, those, those periods. So that, that, that's who Stair was. The question of what interests me in Stair is one that's evolved over time. So I came to studying law after doing philosophy and Stair even to this day within Scots law is at least notionally understood as a legal authority. So you will encounter him in your undergraduate studies of law as an institutional writer, so someone who the courts may refer to on a point of law. In reality, they don't, but that's what we teach our students. So I first encountered them then, and as a philosophy graduate, I looked not just at the legal propositions, but I looked at his structuring and prefacing of his legal discussion in the first book of the institutions, and I was like, wow, this is a significant natural law project here. This is not just a legal summation of lots of random propositions of law from the 17th century. This is a really ambitious project. And I then was, my understanding of Stair was deepened from reading Neil McCormick, the legal philosopher, who towards the end of Neil McCormick's career in the sort of late 2000s, he started to write about Stair as well from the perspective of contemporary legal thought. And that, again, got me interested in who Stair was. But lawyers, they pass over the first few pages of Stair's institutions. I mean, we're talking about maybe the 20 pages of introduction in the institutions of the law of Scotland. Pass over it. It's dual of theology, philosophy. It's quite tersely written. And they pass over it and go straight to the legal propositions. 
Whereas the intellectual historians, if they ever pick it up, like, um, I mean, Bernard Williams called them, I think he said, unknown to anyone except subject specialists, and Martha Newsom called them obscure. But Neil McIntyre did do an analysis of Stair, but it was quite, it was very, very good, but very quick. And so I think from the point of view of intellectual historians, they've never really got their teeth into Stair as an example of of someone who actually materialised in a very um, notable way ideas into the practice of law in Scotland. And I think sometimes intellectual history can have an ethereal thing where we absolutely do not doubt its influence on the motivations and structures and institutions we have. But I thought with Stair, what's really interesting, some of the things that he did and said still have significance to the practice of law in Scotland today. So I thought it was interesting to write a book on that, particularly as contract law, which jurists in Scotland to this day would still refer to Stair as significant. And even the court will refer to his ideas of contract. So, I mean, I just think this is a fascinating topic to really get your teeth into. And, and also then Stair's right at the cusp of what we now would call, I mean, do we call it, or what do we call it, the Scottish Enlightenment. And there's absolutely some really fascinating connections. There's discontinuities, but continuities into people like Gresham Carmichael, particularly, and Stair, which is really rich and fascinating. And I don't think we've really got our teeth into this stuff yet. So there we go. I hope people are still listening. <laughs> Fantastic. You you mentioned the law of contract, and and you argue in your book that that's one of Steyr's central innovations. Um, um, but before we uh, talk about Steyr's contribution, can you say something about the law of contracts, such as Dalrymple would have come across it before he embarked on his own work? Yeah, so what we need to distinguish here first is that my focus in the book has been upon what lawyers thought the law was before Steyr, rather than what the merchants in Scotland were thinking or burgesses or those actually trading. So the distinction here is what lawyers were thinking. And what Steyr would have encountered was many disparate sources of law. The, for the... the Early modern legal mind in Scotland, they would have made sense. But for us, looking back, the framework is very difficult to see. So what what's we would see as contract law before Stair was a patchwork of US community sources. So without getting too detailed on this, we're talking about Roman law and canon law. So that would have been one of the principal sources, particularly in terms of some propositions of law, but more importantly from Roman law structure, the way by which you would structure your description of law. So arrangement and taxonomy would have come from Roman law. But then there was some, some statutes of the Scottish Parliament, which were very significant given their authoritative status as being passed by the sovereign. And then at the same time, there would have also been customary law. Now, what Stair is part of is in the 1650s in Scotland, people start writing about Scots customary law, not as just part of a patchwork 
of sources that would make up contract law, but actually as a more cohesive and more extensive area of law. So we're moving more from these sort of transnational, almost um, like transterritorial ideas of law, of Roman law and canon law, and even feudal law to an extent. We're moving there in the 1650s to more state-bound law, customary law. And so Stair's part of a movement in the 1650s when he actually starts, late 1650s when he starts drafting the institutions more generally, but also in contract law, is trying to see what is the customary practice of law in Scotland, which is a really interesting thing. And there would have been some key propositions of law that would have been accepted in Roman law and in canon law and in customary law, such things such as a promise that isn't written and a promise that isn't maybe followed by an external action of transfer or an external validation of that just isn't legally compelable, which Stair, as I talk about in the book, flips it on its head for different reasons and we make it into that. But the other thing that he does that's different and numerous things he does in his arrangement of contract law and concepts that he brings to contract law, which we may discuss, but he also is very commercially focused. So when he's talking about the law of contract in Scotland, he's no longer just talking about sources. He starts to try and evaluate it. And often he's saying, I'm evaluating this according to equity. But then the actual solution he favours often is one based on utility, which is in favour of commerce. And that was something that I came across during the research of the book, which was really quite fascinating to me because you get in the 16 late 1650s, 1660s, Stair favouring a far more pragmatic contractual solution. So he's moving from these propositions of law and these disparate sources to bring them all together. He's saying that he's evaluating them according to equity, but the solution that he recommends and says that law of Scotland should follow or is very commercially focused, I would say. So that the, the, we can go into this in more detail because the substance of the book is Stair's innovations. Mm. But I'm pleased you asked about contract law before Stair because that was really the hardest part of the book to do, is to put together these mindsets of lawyers before Stair and to look through the manuscripts that we would use to try and compile and get something together to say this is what lawyers thought about contract law before Stair. And it's probably the hardest part of the book and where the most labour is in. And it's condensed down to one chapter, essentially, but it was tough work. That. <laughs> yes, yes, I can imagine, because Stair is sometimes considered the father of Scottish law. So I can understand why it would be difficult to go beyond the father. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, yes. And in a way, Stair writes down a lot, which his contemporaries just didn't. They just didn't think it was necessary to write this material down. And that then means you have to be um, judicious and discerning, but contextual. And that's very tricky when the sources are relatively limited. But I, hopefully I can tell a story in the book and 
the contract before state. In some ways, if you're not interested in it, that that one is really for the lawyers. And if you're not interested in before state, you can flick over those pages. Um, but that gives you, sets you up to kind of say, well, Stair really innovates in this area. And one of the things that pressed me to go beyond the legal sources was because of the the change that Stair introduces and the ideas and concepts is so distinctive in comparison to his near contemporaries. Fantastic. And you mentioned one of Stair's innovations is to start to think more about utility and commerce when, when he's thinking about contract law. But in your book, you argue that the law of contract for Steyr revolves around uh, four central ideas. Can you can you say something about those four ideas that you isolate and identify? Yeah, so if you go to the actual text, it's interesting because what you have is a he has a um, an introductory section on contract now. Rather than going into individual contracts and talking about individual species of contracts, which his contemporaries would have done, Stair gives you a big introduction over the space of 20 titles, where he actually said he tries to link contract law to, to natural law and to theology, but equally also to, to very practical pressing needs of, of Scotland at that time. Um, some of these sections probably are on the cusp of the restoration so so Charles, Charles II is coming with all these money as well or at least the, the promise of money and commerce and trying to get Scotland back on its feet so what, those sections are really interesting because the, the first thing he does and this is something that his, his um, contemporaries just do not engage with, but that's not to say they weren't thinking about it. They just don't write about this. But he he links the law of contract to a very particular um, human purpose. So he says that contract is about commerce. And he says property is about society. And he says that freedom is about the individual, the individual actually having the freedom to bring glory to God being the important caveat on that. But the at this outset, he's linking this to a picture of natural law where commerce is actually a very human realisation of an underlying basic indisputable axiomatic principle of natural law, which is to stand by the faith of your passions. If you a moral principle that is straight through from antiquity to today is you stand by the honour of your contracts. The interesting thing is that in reality, that wasn't the case in practice. And even it's not the case today. There a lot more needs to happen. But Steyr wants to, first of all, start with that proposition. And he says that this isn't just about natural law and abstract. It's about commerce because flourishing bases itself flourishing of society that we live in today is based on the free flow of traffic and trade and without the security of contract and people standing by the faith of their contracts, trade would uh, disintegrate and there would be no safety or security. So it's a re I think that's really interesting and innovative. He's writing that, innovative for lawyers, but he's bringing that to a legal text. So he gives it a purpose right up at the start. So 
he's saying to lawyers as well as whoever else reads it, look, there's a purpose to contract law. I'm not just talking about how a document should be signed. I'm not talking about prerequisites that are very legalistic. It has an overlying, an underlying purpose. He then moves on again in a very philosophical way. He says that regardless of the external acts that we think confirm our consent to contract, we should see contract as being based on the will of a party. And that then, as I discuss in the book, it connects there to the sort of philosophical, theological tradition right into the medieval period. And he is using the term will in a very, very specific sense. He knows what it will say to his reader. It's a philosophical term of art for there. And he is saying to his reader, yes, you need written documents at times. Yes, you need an external act that will validate things, et cetera, et cetera. But they're all practicalities. But in, in theory and in reality, the responsibility for the contract being created rests on the will of a party. And he places the law of contract in Scotland on a very, very clear philosophical concept of the will, which he then moulds around the existing practice of law and the propositions of law he describes. But in a really sophisticated way, he, he shows how it all stems back to the will and consent of parties. So that's the second distinctive thing that he does. The, the third thing is the arrangement of law and particularly the foregrounding of contract over property. So traditionally legal texts that were trying to be structured in the description of law would start with status, free man, slave, even though it was a defunct concept, it was still part of the legal tradition, your status, then they would move to property, and then they would move to obligations, and then they would move to actions. Steer flips it on its head. He starts his whole arrangement of the law on interpersonal relationships, and he starts by putting contract before property, so showing that there's a, a preeminence in the hierarchy of law and of the importance is contract. So that's the other thing that I think is is really important. And then the other thing that he does is he links all of this to a conception of liberty to contract. So it's very important that I have the liberty to contract with whom I choose, which I mean is, in theory, makes a lot of sense to us today. But in the 17th century, when you've got so much regulation around who you can contract, what kind of contracts, is someone a, in a, is someone a Burgess, is someone a foreigner, all of these things. And Stair said, well, in essence, it's about the individual to bring um, freedom. Now, the important thing that we shouldn't pass over is he still thinks as a Presbyterian, heavily influenced by Calvin, particularly book, 20, book 4, chapter 20 on civil government, he, he still thinks that when I'm using that liberty, that liberty should be used to bring glory to God. So the liberty, when I contract with you and I use it, should have the end purpose of bringing glory to you. Whether that is me being prudent and being cautious and sensible with how a contract, or whether it's not being 
too sharp or mean-spirited, all of that should in the end bring glory to God. But that's the fourth thing, this connecting connecting it with, with freedom, which um, we can go into, like obviously Grotius always looms large mm. in the background and stare is very much engaged with that. But he brings that in a really practical way to the description of law in Scotland. Fantastic. Um, I, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about Stair's religiosity and his Presbyterianism, because it seems to me that that's very significant for his ideas about contract and promises. Yes, you can you can see in the institutions in terms of the sources he uses, they're relatively unconventional for a lawyer. So he'll reference um, the Bible and, and biblical pa passages and he'll use religious terminology. He will he will say things, you know, to hard-nosed practicing practicing lawyers, practitioners, that contract law is about in essence, a flourishing society and bringing glory to God. and So there's a lot in there in the text that speaks of um, his religiosity, to use that term. And it's often been noted that Steyr was a Presbyterian. Um, by Presbyterianism, I would say that the um, Westminster Confession of Faith, 1647, and particularly the catechisms and the longer catechism is almost a, a sister book or the backbone to the theological structure and propositions and ideas of Stair. Because when you compare the two closely, the Westminster Confession of Faith and Stair's institutions work very well together. So there's an interesting thing there by which Stair is probably, as far as I can see, one of the most extensive Presbyterian working out in practical terms, a theological legal project. Now, to the lawyers, he says, I think, in an essence, he's saying to the lawyers, look, the law is the same, but I'm going to re-describe it, whereas to the, the Presbyterian ministers and the theologians, he's saying, look, we don't need to really change the law that much because I'm going to show you how it is an expression of God's plan and God's design, and there is nothing that you'll find here that will undercut the dogmatic Westminster Confession of Faith 1647. And there's some really interesting work still to be done in terms of actually working out the relationship between Presbyterianism and particularly Calvin's chapter 20 on civil government and how Steyr actually brings that to life, I think, in several ways, not just in terms of being comfortable with commerce and seeing that as part of a functioning temporal society that brings glory to God, but also in terms of the actual structure and taxonomy that he uses. So there's a lot there and it, it's something that still needs to be explored, but I, I've tried to bring a little bit more of that. In fact, there's quite a lot. I, I read a lot of theological 17th century theological treaties. <laughs> and absolutely scared the pants off me reading Rutherford and people like that. Um, I suspect we're all Arminians now, according to Rutherford, so it doesn't matter where you are as a as a Protestant. Anyway, it, it's a really interesting aspect of what Stair does, and I think it's something that, that's been underappreciated in, in Stair. Great. great. Great to hear that we're all Arminians now. <laughs> um, so, so you end your book with the reception of, of Steer's ideas and the and the life they have 
uh, after he, he he passed away. Uh, what can you say about Stair's ideas in the 18th century and, and in, this, in the Scottish Enlightenment more general? So th this is where the, the conclusion of the book is in one way talking about a legacy and in one way talking about the end. So what you have is the, the legal profession, and we may come on to this about how we understand legal thought and the evolution of legal thought, but the lawyers continue doing what they do. So there's a treatise brought out by George Mackenzie, a, a friend and contemporary of Stairs, which in some ways talks, he talks in his preface, George Mackenzie, Lord Advocate, the, he took the phrase Bloody Mackenzie because he was persecution of radical covenanters during the Restoration. But Mackenzie, a, a brilliant man of letters as well, a, a terrific humanist. He he kind of, after Stair's treatise comes out in 1681, Mackenzie brings out his book in 1683. I mean, we've got two books now coming along very quickly after each other, published, not in manuscript, published. Because the manuscripts, they would pass around the advocates and they would reuse them, but published is a big step. And he goes back to the old ways, structuring it around Roman law. We, we don't need to talk too much about natural law. Let's keep to that conventional division between divine law, natural law, use gentium, civil law. Let's not get complicated in mixing propositions of natural law up with our description of law. That's for the theologians. He writes very concisely, he doesn't use philosophical, theological terms, and Mackenzie's institutes are exceptionally popular, probably because on one way, at a very basic level, what, what a 19, 20, 21 year old returning from Europe or who wants to go after their MA to be a lawyer, they want to pick up a quick book to read that's accessible, and not going into much. So there's a part of that that is Mackenzie's far more accessible to to a degree to someone who just wants to learn law and the way lawyers think. But what we can see also is that Mackenzie does describe some of the things that Stair describes, but he does it in a different way. He doesn't do it in such an elaborate philosophical way, um, which is a, an interesting thing. And Mackenzie is popular. He goes through numerous editions again and again, right through the 18th century. And Alexander um, Bain, who was a professor of Scots law at Edinburgh University in the 17, oh. 1720s, he tells his law students, look, Stair writes about cases, so go to Stair to find out about cases and individual decisions that have been made at a particular point, because Stair's good at recording these because he was a judge but when you're talking about how to think about law and structure law let's just stick to Mackenzie let's go with Mackenzie and it's not that Mackenzie's um, at all irreligious far from it again he's a Presbyterian but he doesn't want to mix the two let's keep them separate and that continues so the lawyers continue in this sort of classical way of learning law in Scotland, using Roman law, using that traditional structure, a, a legal humanist approach that is in some way sealed off from philosophy and natural law in terms of how you discuss it. And that continues and Stair in some ways in the 18th century doesn't have much of an imprint. What you do see 
in terms of legal thought, what you see is um, another judge, um, uh, Lord Bankton, Andrew McDowell, in the 1750s, tries to write a book that emulates there. So, you know, maybe 60 years after, say, we've got that. Kames, Lord Kames, the great literary a figure of the 18th century and he gave so much patronage and so much support and he was so fervent in his ideas. He did try and start to write something like Steer and he says it, but he gave up. So there isn't that sort of mode of writing in Scots law that is ever really repeated, something that's comprehensive that tries to put the law of Scotland on a philosophical footing. It just doesn't happen again. Um, what you do see though, is if you strip away the legal propositions, you strip away the, the dense detail of practical 17th century law in Scotland, what you see is the backbone of natural jurisprudence, and I would say, and that's the Hackinson definition of natural jurisprudence I would adopt here. So we're talking about a, a real concern about structuring social relationships, and we're talking about it being done on an interpersonal level and it being very practically focused. And what you see is Stair is, in a, in a sense, he's looking to Grotius, he cites Grotius, he calls him the learned jurist. He is doing a sort of Calvinist reworking of Grotius's project. And he structures things rather than around rights, around duties. And that, I think, means that Stair is one of the first in Scotland, not, not the only one or not the first. We never know who the first might be in many instances, but he publishes something that is engaging with natural law in a modern way for the 17th century and being practically focused and structuring things around interpersonal relationships. And that continues, as we know, <laughs> right into the 18th century. And so Stair's legacy has been part of that tradition in Scotland of engaging with Grotius and thinking about natural law in a very practical, juristic manner, using legal terms and being taxonomical in how you structure moral philosophy. And that, I think, is one of the interesting continuations of what Stair does. So he doesn't necessarily seen as being very significant by the Enlightenment, but I think the best comparator to see that style of thinking that you get in stare, once the, the basic law is taken off the top and the structure remains, is Gresham Carmichael. And actually then you go through and you, you compare these underlying, these underlying philosophical moral imperatives Steer has and the way he deals with them. And it sounds very similar to the way that Gresham Carmichael does it, Francis Hutchison does it, you can go right to people like James Beattie because, you know, they're not metaphysically fussy. However they base it on what their metaphysics changes, but you can see that. And I think you can see something also interesting in Stair's theological treatise that he publishes anonymously at the end of his life, but we know it was by Stair because his son authorised a biography later. That, that confirms that was written by Stair. And you can also see, I think, um, sort of, I'm not a theologian and a history of theology, but you can definitely see a, a, a far different way of writing about theology in Stair's theological treatise than the ones that I've read from the 17, mid 17th century into the 1660s and things. 
Um, so there's a legacy there in theology that just has not been explored whatsoever. And I harvested the th theological text in order to give me a sense of his um, like moral philosophy and philosophical perspective. But the theology is, is definitely present and worth examining. And I think it sounds to me modern. So there's a project waiting to be done. <laughs> There's always a project waiting to be done. We're coming to an end now, Stephen, but, but before we end, I'm hoping that you might wish to say something about your methodology in writing the history of, of legal thought, uh, because I think that's something our listeners would, would be very interested in. Yeah. One, one of the things I'm really keen that this book could do would be to open up legal history to intellectual history, because even the primary sources are so densely packed into very specific contexts and traditions and terms and ideas that can be really difficult and inaccessible. But I actually think if we try to build bridges more between intellectual history and legal history, it can be mutually beneficial. And that was one of the things when I was writing the book, I was very aware of two audiences, legal historians who know Stair, and I want to tell them about what Stair thought, and then I was thinking of intellectual historians interested in the development of ideas about contract and freedom to contract, interested in commerce and the development of trade, and start of like state building around law and to open it up to say, look, we can see the materialization in this legal text. But the important thing is that in some ways you can look at Stair's institutions and he's on one level describing the law of Scotland, and you can miss the thought and the ideas there as a lawyer, because intellect, legal historians often want to write about the development of institutions, courts and rules and doctrines, and how that can actually, in a, in a sometimes beneficial way, these things can develop in a quite insulated way from the context, because legal thinking and legal ways of reasoning are actually very specific tradition that can be quite, um, autopetic, if that's the right word, to outside influences. But equally, I think we can overstate that as legal historians and miss the context and the audiences and the, the ideas that might be brought to present the law to the audience. And so I think I hope that the book is a demonstration of how legal history can be opened up, but also how intellectual history can be used to enlighten more from what we would traditionally write off as just, oh, that's a big 750-word text about 17th century law in Scotland. And I think there's more to it. There's more in Mackenzie, there's more in Stair's contemporaries as well. And Stair demonstrates that, I think. On that note, I, I want to say thank you for joining the podcast today, Stephen. It's been a pleasure having you on. Okay, thank you so much.
Oh, I'm absolutely delighted to have done a podcast. Um, I, I, You've done a podcast I, now. I've been on a podcast. This is the, writing a book for OUP was one thing, but being on a podcast, that's a really different thing. 